Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Go to Luke chapter 13. We're going to uh, finish Luke 13 this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, if this is your first time, just glad you're here. We, we very simply just love to worship um, Jesus, who we believe is God, who we believe was also God's son, who came and lived the life for us that we couldn't live, died the death for us we could never die, to ransom and reconcile us back to God in relationship. And uh, he rose, validating that he did it in full, that he paid the debt in full, and that now we get to be adopted sons and daughters with an eternal life, an eternal inheritance ahead of us. So it uh, gives us great joy to gather, great joy joy to worship uh, this Jesus who did this for us. And um, yeah, real quick, if there are older burden kids that, that need to be taught, Bob, are you in the back? Are you taking them out back? You can just find Bob. He'll take you out the back doors. I think the rest are out there getting ready to be taught. So head that way if that is you. Um, let me just say this. Um, uh, out of the gate, we've been seeing in the, in the gospel of Luke, if you're, if you're new to Christianity or you're new to church, you're new to just being here, you're still really kind of unfamiliar with your Bible, um, Luke is this gospel. There are four of them that basically recount the life and ministry of Jesus. It, it gives you his teachings, gives you his miracles, gives you his his uh, just profound ways that he talks and dialogues and ultimately captures the, the greatest essence of who he is, which is his uh, sacrifice, sacrifice on the cross. And so in Luke, um, Luke is actually writing this gospel because he really wants to lay before you why you cannot just trust the life and teachings of Jesus, but that the life and teachings of Jesus will be transformative in your life. So it's not something you just kind of listen to or, or, or sit in. That We don't believe that here. We don't believe that by some osmosis, you hearing this word being taught or given or preached to you, you're somehow going to be changed. We believe that it's Jesus who works through his word that transforms the heart and mind and makes us more into the image of the Son. And, and let me just say this. I know we've been in a section of Luke that, that has been ruffling some feathers, and that's because Jesus loves you. He's the most loving person who ever lived. He's the most just person who ever walked the planet, and he did everything he ever did or said was always absolutely right. And so uh, this morning is going to be another one of those. If you guys have been reading ahead, I think I got a few um, emails last week. They're like, oh boy, we got another text where Jesus is just straight up angry. Well, he's not, he's not just angry for no reason. He's actually deeply loving in his anger because he's been laying before us and before the people he's ministering to for, for almost two years now that he came to forgive sin, right? That, that's not a bad message. That's, that's great news to people who realize that they're sinful and are in need of a savior. And so um, here's what this morning is going to do to us. The next few minutes um, will not necessarily lend themselves to a nap. That's just probably not going to happen. This is uh, something that will be, uh, could be possibly painful, uh, could offend, but I believe that it could also take a piece of coal and make it beautiful, okay? So let's pray and ask God to do that. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust it with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls. Would you help us even this morning to trust what you say? God, we realize that there is a battle of unbelief happening even as we walk through these doors, even as we sit in our seats, even as we gather to sit under what is the preaching of your word. So God, help us. God, help us to know more of you. Help us to see that what you say and lay before us is not to take but to give. God, would you illuminate hearts, illuminate minds through the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 13. We're going we're gonna to finish, and we're coming off the heels. Last week, um, Pastor McKinney did a great job at basically walking through that short little text that Jesus basically laid before us, what, what is the kingdom of God like? What, what is that like? And he, he kind of fleshed that out a little bit, and what he's going to do this morning is we're going to see Jesus continue to go and teach about this kingdom of God and how you enter the kingdom of God. And, and this is in the last year of Jesus' ministry. His ministry was about three years. He's basically now traveling uh, Judea, the southern part of Israel, the remainder of his time as he's He's going about teaching. He's going from city to city, town to town, synagogue to synagogue, places all around. He's laying before people that you can enter this kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is basically the same as saying you can have salvation, okay? It's interchangeable language. So every time he says, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand, he's really saying, too, salvation's at hand, and you can enter this kingdom, this, this realm where there's a good king named God. You can only have entrance to this king through Jesus. And he's going to really show that this morning. And he's a God who gives righteousness and forgive sins. So, so as he goes proclaiming this kingdom of God, this, this salvific language, he's overpowering demons, he's overpowering death, he's overpowering disease. The masses are drawing towards him. And as the masses come, here's what's interesting. The majority walk away from him. 
in, in the sense of trusting what he's saying, right? He, he's the biggest craze, no doubt. I mean, you've got, he's the craze of Israel. You've got people all over who are flocking to him. You've got tens of thousands of people that gather to hear what he's saying, to hear what he's laying before people. But in the midst of all that, you've got a lot of curious listeners, but only a few that actually trust him as Lord. Only a few that actually believe he's the Messiah that came to forgive sin. And so here, as Jesus is doing that, we're seeing the national leadership of Israel, they've already outright rejected Jesus. They've actually pegged him as someone who's doing works on behalf of Satan. So they're saying, hey, you're demonic in what you do. And um, you've got all this happening. You've got some with some level of interest. But for the most part, most are either just totally indifferent to the message of Jesus or they're straight up hostile. And so here we're going to see this morning a warning from Jesus that, that creates some good examination that ends with a great call of compassion. All right, let's go to Luke chapter 13, start in verse 22. Here's what Luke writes. He, this is Jesus. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, right? He is resolved to get to Jerusalem, right? Chapter 9, verse 52 already set that. He already turned his face towards Jerusalem. He is ready to go and do what God has asked him to do, which is give his life as a ransom for sinners. And as he's on his way journeying towards there, someone says to him, Lord, will many, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, interesting, so one person asks him a question, yet he, gives it, it, he uses it as an opportunity to talk to everybody. And so he says to them, the group, whoever's around him, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Okay, so Jesus is preaching and teaching. This is normal for him as he's traveling, as he's going. He's headed towards Jerusalem. And somebody, we don't know really who, somebody says to him, hey, hey, Jesus, um, are just a few going to be saved? Like this message of the kingdom. Now, this is a natural question for this guy to ask because what's happening as he's been seeing Jesus preach that, hey, God's a good God. God's a gracious God. God forgives sin. God replaces himself as a substitute for you as a sinner and takes your sin and gives you righteousness. As Jesus is saying, hey, I'm that guy. I'm that God. I'm going to ransom my life. I'm going to give myself for your sin. He's seeing all these people leave and walk away. He's seeing only a few people stay and trust Jesus, right? We saw that in chapter 9, the call of discipleship. I mean, everybody's leaving him, and only a few are lingering. And so naturally, he's going to ask the question, well, I mean, are just a few going to be saved then? Because out of the masses, I'm seeing only a minority turn to you and lean into you as Savior. And Jesus, as he always does, right, doesn't answer the way you think he'd answer. <laughs> he doesn't say, ah, well, here's the number. Or, oh, this is the reason. He does what is so classic Jesus. Uh, what about you? You strive to enter the narrow door. Right? We saw this in chapter 13, right? All these people have all these. It's, it's, it's honestly, I believe, a demonic distraction. We get caught up with whatever other people are doing, with other ideologies, with other philosophies, with other humanistic ways of going about life. And it distracts us all from you. Right? He's saying, no, what about you? Are you going to enter through the narrow door? Are you going to be saved? Are you going to repent of sin? He doesn't give room for speculation. He just deals with the person. We saw this in 13, right, where they're all, all these, these disasters are happening. Like, hey, hey, why do all these things happen? He's going, hey, well, that could happen to you, so are you going to repent? And, and we don't like this response from Jesus that what about you? We want, we want answers to every last thing that happens on planet Earth, Right? And some things are left to the counsel of God. Some things are left to his infinite wisdom. So here, the, the, the amount of people that will trust in Jesus is, is undisclosed to us, but it's disclosed to the sovereign God. We don't know what, who that is or, or what those people are, but here Jesus looks and lays before this person and these people the most important question Jesus always gives. Deal with you before you go speculating about everybody else. Deal with your heart. <laughs> Where do you stand before him? Have you entered through the narrow door? Have you strived to enter into the kingdom of God? And he simply says here, the door to enter the kingdom of God, we're going to see later, Jesus will verifiably say, it's him, it's Jesus Christ. This is the door that separates holiness and unholiness, judgment and salvation, life and death. It's a meaningful door. This, this door you turn the knob on has a eternal implications. And there's some of you, most people won't talk to you about this, right? People aren't going to actually say these things. But, but Jesus is narrow, so we have to be narrow. 
right? And so, so here, Jesus is the most notable, most trustworthy, most credible person who ever lived, so we need to listen to what he says. So here Jesus is, is talking here, and, and he clarifies how someone enters the kingdom of God. And he says, it's not, what's not important is how many, what's important is that you're there. Okay, what's important is that you enter the, through the door, the right door. Okay, so it's, it's not a matter of how big are the masses. That's what he's saying here. And he says it's difficult to get into because most people are going to prefer every other door, right? Every other door. You can take your sin with you. You can take your self-righteousness with you. You can take your religion with you. You can take you being God with you. You don't need to die to yourself. You don't need to repent of sin. You don't need to confess sin. You don't need to have any cross-bearing obedience to Jesus. Forget it. You can just drag everything of who you are. There's no submission. There's no glad satisfaction in God. You just be be you. God just wants you to be who you want to be. There's no denial of yourself. There's no submitting to his will. You just enter through the door. And he says, that's the wide road in Matthew 7, right? That, that's where everybody looks for all those doors to enter. But the door that leads to the kingdom of God is narrow. Few people are want to go through that door. Few people are going to, going to want to die to themselves and, and live to the glory of Jesus and let him be Lord of their life and not them be Lord of their life anymore to actually put down their idols of worship outside of him and, and live in accordance to what he said because he's a good, generous God and not a demeaning, selfish God in the sense of taking from you but only one who wants to give. And so he says here, it's not only difficult, it'll be a challenge also because by nature, you're fallen. <laughs> by nature, you're sinful. So by nature, you're, not, you're gonna wanna do what you wanna do. You're going to want to remain the chief end of your heart. You're not going to want anyone else to invade that. You don't want anyone else telling you what to do and how to be and how to live and how to look. And, and so he realizes it's going to be difficult for many. It's going to be a challenge because many of us love control of our life. Many of us love our sin more than him. And here's the thing. The reason that this is going to be so hard is because the gospel doesn't accommodate that. The gospel is not Jesus wants to come and make you everything that you want to be. The gospel is you totally abandon your life to his glorious purposes and will for you. Knowing that in the end, that's going to lead to deeper joy and deeper life and deeper meaning than you being God of you. And, and if we're all honest in this room, you're a terrible God of you. Right? I mean, if, if you really look at the decisions you make and the ways that you really think what's right and what's good and the sin that you are enslaved to, the things that you chase that, that always end up empty, you know that you're not finding the right door. You know that you being left to you as God is not leading to endless satisfaction and security and identity. You know that. And so Jesus reveals there's only one door that is. And underneath all of this, Jesus is revealing the exclusivity and inclusivity of Christianity. Now, now, I know some of you are like, well, this is the issue of Christianity. Christianity is just exclusive. Well, in one sense, it absolutely is. There's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. There is no eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of his own blood. So in one sense, the door is narrow. It is very exclusive. But in another glorious sense, it is totally inclusive, I mean, this door of salvation, this, this inclusive door, no matter how rich, poor, black, white, wise, simple, tribe, tongue, nation, doesn't matter. Even the most vile, if they repent of sin and turn to Jesus, can enter this door. It is totally inclusive. Now listen, this goes against the grain of almost every other belief system that says, hey, you gotta pretty much be a good person, so when you stand before the God of that made religion or whatever it is, then your goodness outweighs your badness, and then you can hope to get in. No, Christianity says, hey, the righteousness of me that you're gonna stand before a God that will never add up, you can have my righteousness given to you and enter through that door, a God that appeases himself through the appeasement of his son towards him. He doesn't say, hey, appease me. He does it through a sacrifice of himself. You have a God that dies as a substitute for you, a God that makes the world out of love and delight to you, towards you, as his image bearer, as his creation. So here we're seeing that it doesn't matter how bad you are, the most wicked, vile, disgraceful among us can walk through the door. It's not based upon how pretty you look or the color of your skin or the tribe you come from. The issue is, have you repented of sin, turned to the only one where there's salvation, and forgiveness of sin in Jesus and entered through and gladly submitted your life to him and abandoned your life for his in exchange for his. 
So Christianity is absolutely exclusive and absolutely inclusive. And, and, and here's the thing. Um, the, the door is open not just to undeserving but ill-deserving. So, so if you're somebody who says, oh, well, Christianity is just totally exclusive, I, th- I think you need to be careful and, and in your judgment of that against your own hypocrisy because here's the deal. If you're honest, if you have an outright enemy who's grieved you or caused you harm, are you waiting at home with a light on to give them a banquet for them to enter your door? Are you going, hey, 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 I'm welcoming you into my house. I can't wait till you come in. Hey, I got a table set. I got the best bank, whatever. You can feast at my table. My light is kept on at night so that you would enter my door. No one's doing that. So who's really exclusive? Jesus, who welcomes all that would repent of sin and turn to him, no matter how vile, wicked, angry, no matter how wicked our, 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 our aggressions and our transgressions are against his name, even though we've trotted his planet, even though he dwells in infinite perfections, we do not want his glory, do not enjoy his glory, enjoy other things, even though we belittle his name, he says, you can come in my house. There's a cost, but you can come in my house. And that's what he does. Praise God that he is not us, right? Praise God, salvation is not wired like we would wire it if we ran the world. Because I bet it'd just be you and your cute little family in heaven. Right? I don't think there'd be any vile, wicked people that have done any harm to you. Imagine if the whole human race was your enemy. Well, now I'm going to keep this to myself. Right? I'm going to enjoy this. God is a gracious, kind God. Praise God that he is not like us, and he invites us to celebrate. So here Jesus gives an illustration, verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence, and and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So Jesus gives an illustration of warning and urgency and entering and striving through this narrow door. And it's the picture of this master who basically has some sort of celebratory thing happening in his house and, and he's letting people into the door and, and you see the door closing and you eventually get to the door, but the door's shut and you can't get in. And it's almost this anxiety of being locked out of this house of being not let in. So then you, then you start making appeals as to why you should be let in. I'm associated with the company that's inside. I mean, I should be in there. I mean, I, I even know the master of the house. Man, I was with him when he preached sermons. I went to his church. I attended his synagogue. And Jesus says that he'll look at them and say, I didn't know you. And he even says, all you workers of evil. Okay, I don't know. You, you ever just, just been reading your Bible and you're like, what? <laughs> I see a few of you nodding. Okay, some of you guys pick up your Bible. Okay, start reading it. Because as you read it, you're going to come across these texts where you're like, did he just say that? Because here's the thing. The people he's calling evil are not ISIS. The people he's calling evil are not, you know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, right? Good, I'm apolitical. Now you can't peg me for one. Okay, so you got both are evil, right? So you got all these different camps, all these different They're not Osama bin Laden. These are moral people. These are decent people that he's calling evil, because you know why? That evil is not just outward actions and inward motives. It's your nature. David says that that in the womb I was conceived in in sin. Right, we believe by, by nature and choice you're a sinner. Right, so it's not just the actions you do or the inward motives you have. So, so everyone living a life apart from the saving work of Christ essentially is living an evil life. But, but you're weighing evil based upon mass murderers and, and pipe bombs and terrorism. And No, no, there is unrighteous people and righteous Jesus. There are evil people and unevil Jesus. He levels the playing field. There's not Mother Teresa, Gandhi, and then Jesus. No, there's Jesus and people. So you've got everyone who is evil outside of the saving work of his son, and then you've got righteous Jesus. So, so he totally redirects what is evil and what is not evil, and here we see that the issue for those who couldn't enter the master's house is that they were not covered in the righteousness of Jesus. It's not that they were better or not as evil as, as those outside. It's those outside weren't covered by his blood and those inside were. So are you covered by the blood of Jesus? Do you find righteousness alone in what Jesus has done for you, or do you find righteousness in your association? 
Do you think God's gonna graft you into heaven just because you're associated with people who know him? Because of the Christian school you went to? Because you sit under sermons? Because your relatives love Jesus? We have to be so careful here, right? Because Jesus is doing this because he loves us. Jesus is laying before us a warning because he cares about those not being fooled. He cares about those who will find themselves in shock, not entering the kingdom of God. And there's urgency here. He says the door is open, but it won't always be. There's no reincarnation. There's no purgatory. Hebrews says that it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Right, so, so he says that once you die, there are these religious people, moral people, decent people associated with Jesus, connected to the church, but their whole association, their whole connectedness is external, not internal. Right, there's no transformation. And here is my, my great fear in a place where knowledge of Jesus and association is so prevalent, but transformation so rare. Texts like this should haunt us in a healthy way as we read them, as we see them, as we look at them. And here we see these people are knocking on the door going, Jesus, open up. We had meals with you. You taught in our streets. You cast a demon out of my uncle. You healed my aunt when she was at my house. And Jesus comes to the door and says, I don't know you. Part of the remorse, I believe, part of the pain of hell will be the shock that you're there. That was, that was hard to, to consider, right? I mean, look, my favorite text is not James 3. Hey, he who teaches is going to be judge of greater strictness. Like, that's not my scripture memory verse of the week, right, every week. But, but I know that i got to do some examination. I have to get up and lay before you things that are hard, right? I have to sit in my office this morning and just, I couldn't even study any longer because I had to just keep praying over souls going, Lord, there may be some, there may be a lot of people that just show up here and in the end will be shocked in utter tormented grief that they are not in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is showing us here. So some of you, do you base your salvation on association and not personal devotion? Is it external, not internal? Maybe you don't worship Jesus as God, Christ, King, Lord, Savior. Have you passed through the narrow door? And I want to talk about this just for a minute because there is this great and abiding fear in me that many of you think you know God and know Jesus like I know Michael Jordan. Okay, I, I don't know Michael Jordan, but I could tell you the championships he's won. I could tell you the years. I could tell you even a lot of his likes and dislikes. I could tell you a lot of the great things he's done. I could tell you a lot about his interviews that he's had. But I don't, I don't know Michael Jordan. Every time you see, do you know Jesus? It's the same word for this abiding, intimate no, just like Adam knew Eve. It's the same word. That, there's intimacy there. There's knowledge there that's, that's past superficial knowledge, but into intimate, knowing, worshipful, joy-filling saving knowing. Do you know Jesus? Not just know stuff about him. Not just know a lot of stuff about God. Do you know him? Is your heart grieved when his heart is grieved? Do you feel the compassion when he feels compassion? Do you feel the, the justice when he feels justice? Do you, do, is your heart becoming aligned with his? Do you know him in that way? Because according to the scriptures, it'll say that we're a union with Christ, right? We're one with him. That's the language Paul will use over and over and over that we're unified with him. I, I, I wonder if some of you just simply conform to a pattern of religion, but you have no transformation in your life. So all you have for you is a list of haven't done and have dones. But you don't have much affection for God. You don't really care if you sin or not. There's, can't remember the last time you repented. Can't remember the last time you even confessed sin. So you have Jesus here saying to people with perfect church attendance that have knowledge of God, I don't know you. Now, every time we get into a text like this, I always get the question, whether through an email or just verbally, Pastor Mike, do you think it's wise to, to, to cause people to doubt their salvation? I always hear that. 
my here, here's, here's what I've always committed to you that I will always teach the text, right? My commitment to you has always been, I will just say what the text says. We're it heralds compassion, we herald compassion. We're it heralds warning, we herald warning. We're it heralds judgment and cause for concern and urgency. We herald the cause for urgency and concern. We're it heralds the clear call of salvation and grace and righteousness and mercy. And we will, we will do all those things. Those are the places that we will go. We will stick to, stay tethered to what the text says. Right? So, so, so in this, as we're looking at this text, what is really wise to do? What is the loving thing to do? Let's just look at it and be like, well, I guess we gotta be nicer. Well, I guess Jesus could just be maybe a psychologist for us in the heavens that helps us out with our needs, or can we let this text read our hearts? But that's what the Bible does, right? It, it reads you. So you let the Bible read you. You don't look into it and say, yep, that's what I want you to be. You say, okay, read me. Man, expose me. I mean, that's, that's David in Psalm 139 where he's like, man, I need to get away, man. Search me. Search my heart. Is there any wickedness in me? I don't even know if it's there. And then lead me in the way that's right. And so here we have the text examining us. So I would imagine that, that just to say this, I, I, would, I would bet that everyone in this room wants to be 100% sure that you know that you're going to be saved. Right? Right? I, mean, I mean, I would say almost all of us want that. We want to know without a shadow of a doubt that I'm going to be in the kingdom of God when I die. If, you're, if you believe you're a Christian or you want to be a Christian, we, we want that, right? That's a, that's a good thing. That's a biblical thing. That's a doctrine that we hold on to. So many of you in this room believe once you turn to Christ in repentance and forsake sin and forsake self and lean into him and trust solely in the merits of Jesus, the work of Jesus alone for forgiveness of sin and salvation and all of that together, that you are secure, that God puts the Holy Spirit in you, adopts you into a family, and you're secure, right? The whole Romans 8 progression, that he who he calls, he justifies. Whoever he justifies, he sanctifies. Whoever he just sanctifies, he, he glorifies, right? So I would say absolutely and amen. I believe that too. If you believe that, that is a true biblical doctrine. But here's the thing. Many of you who believe that doctrine don't know if you're really saved. You're very insecure. You lay awake at night wondering, am I in the kingdom of God? Have I strived through the narrow door? So this, let me, let me help us with this. This doctrine that, that God saves and it's secure. You, God doesn't let go of who he saves. You can't lose your salvation, eternal security. That's a true doctrine. That is absolutely objective. That's a fact. He will, Philippians 1, continue the good work that he started in you and complete on the day of Christ. Absolutely. Now, but how you feel about your salvation is totally subjective. Your assurance is subjective. So it's an objective fact, but how you feel about that subject. So here's what I'm saying. If you are not living a godly life, if you are not repenting of sin, if you are not walking in the light, if you have just secrets everywhere that no one knows about, if you are living a life that is contrary to the gospel, contrary to Christianity, you see no evidence in you that Jesus reigns in you, abides in you, then you're going to lay awake at night very insecure. You're going to lay awake at night wondering if you were ever really saved, if you ever entered the narrow door. So let me just, let me just do this for a minute, because I think most of us right now are thinking through all the verses we know that talk about eternal security. And one of the most popular ones is 1 John. Okay, this is one of my favorite ones to look at. 1 John 5, verse 13. It's going to be on the screen. This is what it says. He says, I write these things to you. Now, just for the record, if you, if you want a book that will shake you up, just read 1 John. Okay, that's, that's not a light read. That's when we're, we're, John just gets at the heart, gets at the motive, gets at who Jesus is as our advocate, as our appealing priest, and yet that follows a life of fruit. It follows evidence that the Holy Spirit reigns in us. First John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So most people read this text and go, okay, well, I believed in the name of the Son of God. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. So I can know that I have eternal life. Now, absolutely, John says there's a way you can know that you have eternal life. What does he say? He says, I wrote these things so that those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God can know you have eternal life. So you have to look at this verse in context. So let's just look at what John wrote. 
Let's look at what he wrote. We're going to just go through a few. We could look at hundreds of verses. I just want to look at a couple. 1 John, they'll be on the screen. 1 John 1, 6 to 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. If we say we have no sin, if we go on saying, well, I don't have sin, I don't need forgiveness of sin. If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. So if the spirit's in you, it's going to manifest that you're his. It's going to demonstrate fruits. Fruits are going to come out of your life. That's, that's inevitable, right? Chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, now you get to chapter 5, verse 13. He says, okay, hey, I wrote all those things to you, so if those things are true of you and you believe in the Son of God, you can know you have eternal life. So, so that there is a way to know, and I just wrote you all of these things so that you can know. Not so that you are justified, not so that you're made righteous before God, but so you can look at your life and go, well, hey man, I'm living a repentant life. Wow, I don't really like my sin. Wow, I actually confess my sin. Wow, I'm actually growing in love for God. Wow, I'm actually growing in joy for God. Wow, I actually don't like it when I cheat on my wife. Well, I actually don't like it when I lust after other women, or I press the porn button, or I you know, want to lie on my taxes, or I'm covered in greed and idolatry that actually runs against against the grain of the spirit in me, and I want out of that. I want to be made new. I want to be the residual effects of the fall. I want them gone in me. So you can look at your life, the spirit that seals you, that demonstrates you're one of his. You go, wow, man, I, yeah, I'm, it's repentance and believe, repent and believe. So John wrote all of these things so that we can see what our life is characterized by, so that we can know whether or not we have eternal life. Guys, this is very simple. I feel like people just overcomplicate this. If, if, if you have been forgiven of all your sin and you truly understand the weight of your sin and the weight of his holiness and you understand the wrath-absorbing cross of Christ on your behalf where he literally takes the wrath of God, he literally takes your sin, he literally becomes your sin for you, gives you righteousness, puts his Holy Spirit in you, frees you from Satan's sin and death and all the idols that enslaved you, puts you in a new family with a perfect dad that loves you, that's for you, that's all about causing you to grow in joy and grow in his glory and grow in knowing him. And you find that freedom. You love that freedom. You know that your eternal inheritance is coming. You know you're freed from the, the pains of hell. And there is no sign at all in you that that happened. What? Right? I mean, we just overcomplicate. Like, if that's true of you, you'll demonstrate something. You'll be grieved over your sin in some way. I mean, there'll at least be a, a, a desire in you. I'm not saying this is not a fight. I'm not saying this is not a war. That's why Jesus actually says, strive through the narrow door. You know, that's, that's the language of war, of exhaustion over your soul. That this isn't going to be easy. Yes, yes, in a sense, it's basic, it's simple how we become Christians, but you've still, you're still fallen, you still struggle with the residual effects of the fall. You have a bent nature towards not loving glory, and he transforms you to loving glory, so strive with the power and help of the Holy Spirit. Hear me, please. You cannot manufacture transformation. Like, like here, here's what I mean by that. You... you the answer today is not, oh shoot, I feel insecure, so I better go home and try to do some good stuff to gain assurance. <laughs> like, that's not gonna do anything. The answer is lean back into Jesus and, and repent of sin and turn to him and, and enable the Holy Spirit of God to fuel your life of obedience. Ask him to help you. Get in community, the community that God's people has, God has given his people to walk in the light and walk in holiness. 
Get accountability in your life. Let the Lord do that. It's not, I'm gonna go home and try to be better. It's go right back to the one thing that saved you and sustains you and sanctifies you, which is his personal work on the cross. Because then once that happens, that fuels who you are. These things just start happening in you. That's why we've been saying forever, everyone's repentance is the way into the kingdom of God and it's the way to continue in the kingdom of God. Right? I mean, just continue to repent of sin and turn to Christ. When the sinner stumbles, when the Christian stumbles, repent of sin and turn to Christ. Martin Luther got it right. All the Christian's life is one of repentance. So this is a good warning. So if you start to see other things creep in that mark you differently, that's a, that's a loving warning. Man, I, I gotta be careful here. I, I gotta watch my life. I gotta watch what is going on in my heart. But understand Only the Spirit can produce this in us. You can't create it. So we're not talking about you being moral. We're not talking about you being nice. We're talking about you seeing and trusting continually in the very one who was slaughtered for you and rose again. And as you see that and as you enjoy that and as you walk in that, it creates what's called the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5. And as you see those fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, it testifies that you're his. This really gets at motive, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't this really get at why you do anything? Like, why do you pray? Because you think you're gaining favor? Because you're scared you might not be in the kingdom? Like, why do you attend church? Because you think by association it can kind of somehow magically put you in the kingdom of God? No, we do all those things as Christians because it's natural. Because it's what we want. So we've got to ask God to graciously examine our hearts. Jesus is going to show us why this door matters so much. Verse 28. In case it wasn't heavy already, here he goes, just laying it on. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west, from north and the south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are the last who will be first, and some are the first who will be last. The door matters because Jesus Christ shows that he is the dividing line between an eternal hell and an eternal heaven. And many people want to play with hell. They want to play with it through philosophy, through ideology, through speculation. Jesus likens it to unending, conscious, eternal torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So all those who do not choose Christ will die on this side of the door, judged based upon their own righteousness, which will never add up to the infinite righteousness required by a holy God. Those who die in the house with the master who strive to enter the the narrow door through the work and person person work of Jesus will be judged according to Jesus' righteousness and will be saved. Now some of you say, I don't believe that. Well, friends, many aren't gonna tell you this. Many will not love you. My job is to love you well and teach you well. I've told you that my job is to just lay before you what the text is saying and let the chips fall and pray that God works and pray the Holy Spirit acts. And here, this is what Jesus is saying. And let me say, if I am wrong, I have everything to gain and nothing to lose. If you are wrong, you have everything to lose and nothing to gain. Man, you ever thought about this? Like, do we really have an option with Jesus? (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? Okay, you can either trust Jesus, right, who was God, who came and lived the perfect life, died the death, rose again, gives you his spirit, gives you a new life. He is for your joy. He is for your happiness. He's more committed to your happiness than you. He's more committed to your freedom than you. He's more committed to unlocking the chains of Satan, sin, and death than you are. He's more grieved by your sin than you. So in compassion, in love, in mercy, in grace, he calls out. He offers union with him, eternal life, not conscious, unending, weeping, and gnashing of teeth in hell. Do we really have an option? I don't really know if I want Jesus. Right? Okay, well, eternal, unending, conscious torment in hell or Jesus. Do we, I mean, mean, we, we act like there's an option here. We know there's no option. There's Jesus or there's suffering. There's Jesus. And this is now, brothers and sisters, we know those of us who, who have been walking with him, who love him and know him, we know that he alone is the one that spares us and saves us daily from greater grief. 
because we have a high priest who is unlike any person who exists, who infinitely identifies with every ounce of pain, sorrow, and remorse in your heart and is grieved more by them than you and is more committed to your joy of you than you are of yourself. And so we love him for that. We long for that from him. Jesus reveals something else that's a little bit hard to see. In hell, you will somehow be able to see and understand the love, grace, and mercy of God that you did not respond to and spend eternity regretting it. In some way, you'll be able to know that there are those who you thought would be there who aren't. And this is why he... He, he puts in there Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because really the Jewish listener needed to hear this, because they thought they were children of the promise, children of the covenants. They thought, hey, by association, since I'm a child of Abraham, man, I'm going to be in the kingdom of God. And he goes, hold on, Abraham, who, who the covenant went to, not Ishmael, but Isaac, and then Isaac to Jacob. Jacob was called Israel, right? He said, okay, it's not about association. It's about whether or not you know Jesus, It's about whether or not his messiahship has cleansed you and forgiven you of sin. And so he says this to awaken and almost shock these listeners in saying, man, there are some of you that are going to be in hell, sons of Abraham, and you're going to realize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't there. There's going to be remorse in your heart. And then he ups the shock even more and says, hey, from the north, south, east, west, they're all going to come. Those are Gentiles, okay? Listen, the Jews hated Gentiles. There was animosity there. They thought, no, they're not part of the promise. They're, they're a separate you know, entity here. The, Jews, the Jewish people are part of the promise. So he's basically saying there are going to be Gentiles sitting at the table in the kingdom of heaven feasting who you think should be in hell with you when you're there, and they won't be there. So your natural conclusion will be they're in the kingdom of God, and that remorse of the shock will be painful. Powerful, which is why Jesus says the last will be first and some of the first will be last, right? What was God's plan? First to the Jew, then to the Gentile, right? So some who will be first will also be last, and some who will be last, the Gentiles, will also be first. What's he saying? He's just saying in the kingdom of God, all will be equal. Jew and Gentile will enjoy the kingdom of God together. God's plan from the beginning, you go to Psalm 107 and many places that show clearly God's intention was always to save people from every corner of the earth. Israel was his witness nation. Just like the church is the witness nation. Israel was the witness nation to the ends of the earth. Every tribe, tongue, people that will be saved. Not all people, but people from every tribe, tongue, nation. Jew and Gentile. And the kingdom of God, all will be equal and that will be a shock to these listeners, those who do not turn to Jesus because some of the sons of Abraham will be perishing as they expect others to be there with them who will not be. Now, it's, it's gonna take an encouraging turn because Jesus cares about this. Verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Well, that, you know you're preaching a sermon, right? I think if someone says that. Get out of here, right? You're going to die because you're preaching. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. Jesus just called Herod a fox. Okay, I just want to make sure you guys saw that. That's another one of those texts. I read that. I go, seriously? Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus is resolved to get to Jerusalem, and as he's going, as he said all of this, as he's laid before the listeners this reality of the kingdom of God, it's a narrow door that you have to strive for, that the gospel doesn't accommodate your wants and your desires, that's a dying to yourself. Some Pharisees come, some religious leaders come and say, hey, Jesus, you better get out of here. Stop preaching because Herod's going to kill you. And Jesus isn't intimidated, right? He's God. So he goes, okay, yeah, okay, well, I know I'm gonna die, but uh, go tell that fox, go tell Herod. That's just, I'm not intimidated, that's an insult to him. That's basically saying, hey, I'm all powerful, Herod's not all powerful, I'm God, I know all things, he doesn't know all things. Hey, I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing until my mission is done, and my mission will be done when I get to Jerusalem, because when I get to Jerusalem, there I need to die, because that's where all the sacrifices are made, and I'm the perfect sacrifice, the final sacrifice, that's gonna slam the door shut on our great, 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 great grandfather Adam, who through his folly and his and open the door to sin, I'm going to close the door on sin and reconcile people to myself through my sacrifice. So you tell Herod he's a fox. It's awesome. It's awesome. I mean, this is one of the only times you'll see Jesus go at somebody and contend against somebody like this. Jesus is like, oh yeah, hold on. Well, I know I'm going to die. I'm God. 
I know all things, but, but hey, I gotta finish my mission. I'm resolved to get there. I'm gonna do this and nothing's gonna stop that. Isn't that awesome that God's even salvation of our hearts is relentless? No, no, that's gonna happen. No, I'm gonna do it. Don't need to worry about what humans try to do. I almost hear him echoing here in John 10. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Let's end with this very encouraging lament from Jesus and ask him for help. Verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at the heart of God through the heart of Jesus. Some of you say, what a cruel God, what a capricious God, what a messed up God, what a mean God that he would send people to hell. What's Jesus doing here? Is he laughing? Is he dancing? Is he scoffing? No, he's weeping. His heart is broken. He's filled with compassion. He's filled with remorse. He's filled with grief that he would see a people, Jerusalem. He's, he's lamenting over them going, man, Israel, my people. I mean, I sent prophets through the centuries to you to, to call you back to myself that I'm a good God, that I'm a, that I'm a gracious God. And what did you do? You just killed them. Like you're ultimately gonna kill me. You have called out to you in kindness, called out to you in mercy. You guys are exhausting yourself trying to be perfect according to the law. Don't you realize that you can't be perfect that until you find acceptance in me and what I will do, then there's rest, then you can come under my wings, then there can be joy, then there can be dining at the table, then there can be a life of ease in the sense of your salvation is made not in the exhaustion of what you do but found in what I've done. Yes, salvation, sanctification happens, but it happens after me, not before me. I came to ease your burden. He's talking to the religious. He's talking to the people who have perfect church attendance. He's talking to those people who think by all their associations with the people in the synagogue, they're somehow gonna make it in the kingdom of God. And he's going, you're actually adding to the exhaustion of your life. You're trying to enter a door through with a different key. Jesus is the key. It's never gonna open for you unless you die to yourself and depend and lean into Jesus. And he says, you won't see me again until you acknowledge that I'm the Messiah, basically. Now, we don't have time for that, but it basically speaks, I think, to a future point where Israel will actually acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. That there will be a time. Because there's rejection, rejection, rejection. Then ultimately they will say that he is. But within this, I want us to see Jesus lamenting, Jesus weeping, Jesus grieving over your sin, over your folly, and even over your rejection of him. Whatever category you, you land in, that he's weeping over that, and he gives a compassionate warning, the door will soon be shut. Enter through the narrow door. I wanna end just with a, with a picture that I was thinking of as I was writing this week. You can close your eyes, you can keep them open. I'm not trying to be mystical or anything weird. I just, I was thinking about this and I want you to really consider this. I was thinking about this picture. You're walking through life and you are utterly exhausted. You are weary, you are heavy laden, you are tired. And you're weighed down by your inability to find freedom, your inability to find hope, your inability to find forgiveness, your inability to find hope and relief. You're exhausted because nothing has worked. Your merits haven't worked, your atheism hasn't worked, your universalism hasn't worked, your pluralism hasn't worked, your humanism hasn't worked. The false gods of identity and security have not worked, so the relationships you run to, the money that you crave, the greed that ensues, whatever it is, has not worked. These are false gods. You're exhausted, you're weary, you're searching, you're looking, and you see a door. And the door is Jesus. And this door that is Jesus is the only door, the only God that says, you don't have to appease me through what you do. I'm going to appease myself through a sacrifice of myself. You don't have to get on the cross and be crucified and bear the wrath towards sin. I'm gonna be a substitute for you in your stead, in your place. 
I am the only door, the only God that, that rose back to life after being dead as a doornail. That I'm the only God, the only door that made you out of love and delight. And this door is closing. You see the door closing. You see the master of the house walking towards the door from the hallway, from the kitchen. And he's reaching for the doorknob to close it. What do you do? You run. You strive with every bit of energy to enter that door. Because for the first time in your life, you're saying, man, there's, there's freedom from sin. There's hope from sin. There's relief from sin. There's freedom from exhaustion. All these false gods of identity and security. All the thing that has been weighing and pressing you down, you actually find a door that promises, validates, and shows and secures freedom, life, hope, forgiveness, joy. And you run. You strive to enter the door, and you don't care what you leave behind. You don't care what you submit to the master. You don't care because you know the answer's there. You know the remedy's there. You don't care what rights he says to lay down. You don't care what obligations he says to forget about. You gladly, in your joy, submit your life and your will to him because the door is shutting and will not stay open, and that's why the apostles will say, today is the day of salvation. Run to the door. Repent of sin and trust him today before it shuts. Let's ask God for help. God, thank you that you're a God that offers salvation, that you are a narrow door that is exclusive. Thank you that there's only one way to just limit the chaos and limit the unmet expectations and false hopes of wonder. But God, thank you that you are a sure savior. That God, you say, when you save, you do justify, you do sanctify, and you do glorify. God, thank you that it's not a chore to lay down rights for a God who opens the door to his house and when we've once been an enemy of his, when we've grieved his heart and profaned his name and trotted his planet, belittled his name. God, thank you that you're a God who keeps the door open and we know the door's open because we're still breathing and because we're still here. So God, would you save some this morning Would there be some good, honest examination of our hearts this morning? God, thanking you that we can be sure, that we can know that as we repent of sin and turn to Jesus, that you enable us, Lord, fueled by your spirit, to walk in the light, to repent of sin and confess sin in joy, knowing that you forgive. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you have unbridled compassion for vile people. Thank you that the door is open to the undeserving and ill-deserving. Thank you that it's not limited in scope in any way. God, might we find relief this morning in Jesus. Might we enter the narrow door. God, help us. Thank you for your grace and your word that's true, that frees us and doesn't bind us. In Jesus' name, amen.